somebody ought to say amen. Amen. <laughs> he is worthy of this. Father, we are grateful that you are worthy, that you alone are worthy, that you're worthy of all blessing and all glory and honor. You're worthy of our, our heart, our attention, our lives. You're worthy of our hands. You're worthy of our calendar, our schedule. You're worried. You are worthy of, of all the resources that you're the source of. You are worthy of all of our lives, our aspirations, our hopes, our goals, and our dreams. And when we come to you, we surrender all of these things to you because you alone are worthy. So I pray that you'll grasp our attention, that you'll grab it this morning, that we would see Jesus, that we would see you in a way that maybe we've not seen you before, that this will not be a, a dry sermon or an academic lesson, but this will be an engagement with the truth of your word in which your Holy Spirit illuminates and brings to our mind and our understanding the truth of your word and applies it to our life and our understanding so that when we leave, we know you better and we follow you more closely. We love you. We're grateful. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Isn't God good? We've been studying the life of Christ, and for those of you who are wondering how long this series is going to last, just buckle up. It's going to last a while, but we're doing it in stages. We've already seen the affirmation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've seen his ancestry in Matthew chapter 1. We've seen his, uh, um, his arrival in Matthew 1 and 2. We've seen his acknowledgement in Matthew 2 by the Magi. We've seen the attestation or the affirmation that Jesus gets not only from Mary and from Joseph through Gabriel and through the angel that spoke to them, also through John and Elizabeth before that, but also through the shepherds as they came, and then Simeon and Anna in the temple 40 days after Jesus' birth. We've seen Jesus acknowledging his mission when he was 12 years old, and now we arrive on the scene. We've just made it to chapter 3, the very beginning of chapter 3 of Matthew, and it's 18 years later. Now, I don't cover that kind of time when I preach. I just want you to know that. But it's 18 years later, and largely we have no revelation of what took place during those 18 years other than the fact that Jesus was being the sinless son of God and the sinless son of Mary and Joseph. And so our text picks up, and one of the great things about Scripture is there are no wasted words. I mean, Scripture uh, is able to say so much so clearly, so briefly. And so we, Stephen has read the account of John coming out of the wilderness. And so I want us to, as we go this morning, we're going to look at just a few things. First of all, John, the last Old Testament prophet. Then his message and his baptism. Then Jesus' baptism. And then we're going to see how that applies to us today. So first, the man John. We first met him before he was born, while he was still in his mother's womb. He was born to be a prophet. As a matter of fact, he had been foretold. He was going to be a prophet like foretold. He was going to be a prophet, one like Elijah and like the other Old Testament prophets, I don't know what comes to mind when you think of an Old Testament prophet, but John ought to be pretty close. He comes out of the wilderness. He looked apart. Verse 4 of what we read this morning in Matthew 3, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. And while I've been studying and preparing for all this, you can't get to the baptism of Jesus without talking about the man who baptized him. And it's been hilarious to me to see people try to explain away eating locusts. You know, you can buy locusts in Greenville. You can eat grasshoppers here. Just take the Bible at its word. He was eating locusts and honey. He was dressed in camel's hair. He looked the role of the Old Testament prophet. 
Now, I want you to recognize that this had been after 400 years of silence. Malachi is the last recorded prophet. The children of Israel had been in captivity. They had been returned to Jerusalem. Some of them came back. Some of them stayed scattered. And there were prophets who came and spoke while they were rebuilding the walls in Nehemiah's time, while the temple was being built with Ezra and Zerubbabel. And they were there trying to settle in. And as history unfolds, there are prophets who have spoken the word of God. Malachi, the last recorded one, and one of the last prophecies of Malachi was that there was going to be a prophet coming to prepare the way of the Lord. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, God speaks through Malachi and says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This prophet, one like Elijah, is going to come and call people to repentance in preparation for the day of the Lord. Matthew records Isaiah's prophecy when he says, John the Baptist was the one who was spoken of by Isaiah when Isaiah said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Unless you're wondering, Jesus also affirmed this. After the Mount of Transfiguration, when, Peter, when Jesus was there with Peter, James, and John, as they were coming down, Jesus affirms to them, you can read this in Matthew chapter 17, verses 9 and following, that Elijah, the one Malachi prophesied of, has come. And he was speaking of John the Baptist. And so we've got this last Old Testament prophet coming into Israel. Now, Israel, of course, northern in the Galilee. You've got the Decapolis just to the east. You've got Samaria here, of course, Jerusalem in the south, Jericho across the river. Uh, it, Galilee in the north, the Dead Sea in the south, the Jordan River running north to south between them. Jews throughout the kingdom. And John the Baptist comes out of the wilderness preaching. And where he preaches, crowds gather and he brings a very strong message. His message is one of repentance. He says to them, you need to recognize your sin. Verse 2 of, of Matthew 3, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His, his, his message is one of repentance. Recognize your sins. But don't just recognize them and excuse them. Recognize them and turn from them. He's telling them, too long have you ignored God. Too long have you turned to your own way. Judgment is coming. The promised Messiah is coming. And he was calling that crowd to repentance. And he was baptizing them with water for repentance sake. But he was also preparing the way. He said he will, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, speaking of the one who is to come. And he said he has a winnowing fork in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John the Baptist was a hellfire and brimstone preacher. Now, he prepared the way because he warned of judgment. He prepared the way because he called to repentance of sin. He, repaired the, he prepared the way because he... He focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a note taker, I would encourage you to do so in your outline. The first thing that we look at John, John was uh, uh, John's baptism. We want to look at the baptism that he engaged in. His baptism was unique. It was one of preparation, and it was for repentance. I want to give you that all at one time if you're a note taker so you can take this down. But listen, let's talk about his baptism. Because that's really the subject that we're focusing on. Baptism, the word itself, baptizo, is a word that simply means to be immersed, to be dunked, to be dipped, to be submerged. 
And the idea of being submerged was not new to the Jews. As a matter of fact, there had been ritual cleansing and ritual washing. Are you familiar with the mikvah, M-I-K-V-E-H or M-I-K-V-A-H? This is a series of rules that were set down in Leviticus and they were put down in Numbers and then were put down in other places for the Jews to actually enter. There were these pools all over Jerusalem, stone steps down, walls, be filled with water from a spring and for ritual cleansing after defilement, if they had touched a dead body, if they had done something that would keep them out of worship, then they would take themselves and they would go down into the water and cleanse and wash and then come back up in preparation for being able to go worship. That was not the baptism of John. They were familiar with that. There was another baptism that the Jews would participate in, and it was the baptism of the proselytes. All of this is under unique. It was the baptism of the proselytes. You know what a proselyte is? You ever heard that word before? A proselyte is one who converts from one system of belief to another. A proselytizer is one who encourages or invites people to come and join their religion from another. Well, if you were a Gentile, you could not racially be a Jew, but could you be a Jew religiously? Could you be adopted into the kingdom and family of God? In that day, you had the Jewish people who observed worship. You had God-fearers, which were Gentiles who had not taken this next step. The next step was to become a Jew religiously. The rabbinical teaching of the day, by the way, was pretty clear. I want to read a, a, a copy from the Mishnah. It says, in all ages, when a Gentile is willing to enter into the covenant and gather himself under the wings of the Shekinah of God and take upon himself the yoke of law, if he's willing to become religiously a Jew, he must be circumcised and he must be baptized and he must bring a sacrifice. As it is written, going back to Numbers, as you are, so shall the stranger be, and so how are you? So likewise the stranger through all generations must come by circumcision and baptism and the bringing of a sacrifice. All right? So are we clear? They knew about ritual washing. John's baptism was not that. They knew about proselyte baptism. John's baptism was not like that. But that would have been what they had in their mind. John's baptism was a one-time, one-shot deal, not ritual cleansing. Listen, any Jew who submitted himself to John's baptism would be saying, in effect, I'm like an outsider. I'm like one who needs entrance into being one of the people of God. That's quite an admission. It's amazing when we think about the Jews who gathered and followed and listened to him. Because verse 5 says all Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. Get this, confessing their sins. So they did this. It's a really big step. As a member of God's chosen people and a son of Abraham, assured of God's salvation, baptized like a common proselyte would have been out of the question. And yet that's exactly what John demanded of them. He was calling Israel to realize that they, their nationality wasn't going to save them. They had to forsake sin. They had to be converted to righteousness. Everyone gets into the kingdom the same way. Everyone prepares for the Savior. His is a calling of preparation. We'll get to this in just a moment. But everyone prepares for the Savior the same way, by the confession and recognition and repentance of sin. John's baptism was unique. It was not the mikvah. It was not the proselyte baptism. It was specifically one calling people to repentance as a means of preparing for the Messiah. It was, it was a, a means of preparation 
Listen to his message. Number one, Isaiah, he fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. And in verse 11, he, when the Pharisees and Sadducees come, he says, listen, my baptism is a baptism of repentance, but there's one coming after me who will baptize in, in fire, and he is mightier than I. And he's always pre- pointing, always preparing people for the one who comes after. His baptism was unique, and it was distinct. It was important that we recognize that because we kind of set the scene. I want to pull this back and walk around a little bit. I want you to join me on the shores of Jordan. Here's this guy dressed in camel hair. And he's got a leather belt around him, wearing sandals. My guess would be his beard looks worse than mine. He probably had hair. He's about 30 years old. And he can preach in such a way that crowds hear him. And his message is not one of social reform. And his message is not one of name it and claim it. His message is the same as all the other Old Testament prophets before him. Thus saith the Lord, your sins have separated between you and your God. And you must repent. But his message had a component that theirs did not. His message was because the promised one, the anointed one, the one all these other prophets have talked about, he's here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Be ready. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the way you get ready is to recognize your sin and repent. So he baptized them into Repent into water as a sign of their repentance. Now, imagine with me. You guys ever been in a big When's the last time you flew in an airplane? Never. No, okay. Airport may not be the best. Best. I keep going to Fall for Greenville because the last time I was in Fall for Greenville, I thought, Lord, if you let me out of here, I promise I won't ever come back. Just because of the masses of people there. By the way, it's a great thing. You ought to go. But just because of the masses of people. Have you ever been in a line you can only move up a step at a time? I don't know. It may be Publix or Ingalls. I don't know. But you've been in a line, and you just kind of step at a time, you move up. Imagine these people who have encountered uh, John's preaching, who have acknowledged their sin, they've repented, and now they're lining up to identify that they've repented their sin in preparation for the coming Messiah. And there's a line of people coming up. Verse 13 says, now Jesus came. He came out publicly. He wasn't hiding, but he came alone. And he's just a man standing in line. Here's a 30-year-old, roughly Jewish man, standing in line, waiting to be baptized. And maybe you're there, and you're waiting, and the line moves up, and the line moves up. And then all of a sudden, John stops, and the line doesn't move. And you can hear this kind of ruckus or uproar at at the front of the line. John's talking to somebody. Now, he's done this before, just a few verses before. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came out. And John said, you, you brood of vipers, you generation who are relying on your self-righteousness, there's one coming. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't baptize them. No, you're not welcome into the waters of baptism as a symbol of repentance because you are not repenting, because you're not acknowledging your sin. He stopped them. But then others would come, and they would be baptized as, as a demonstration of their repentance. But here comes one, and now John stopped the line again. Why? Well, because this one is different. This Jesus of Nazareth has no sins to repent of. John, and, and the phrasing there in the passage of Scripture, in John chapter, uh, I mean, Matthew chapter 3, verse 14, it says that, 
basically, John was continually remonstrating with him. John would have prevented him. Listen, I'm not going to baptize you. I know who you are. Remember, these guys were cousins. They met before they were born. They probably played together as children. You know John had heard his dad and his mom's story of the angel of his conception and of his birth and of his purpose. And whether or not they had engaged actively as kids and as teenagers, John had been taken out to the wilderness by God, and he had been prepared for this duty. That he came out of the wilderness is significant. And so John was expecting this. He was expecting something. Now, he was waiting on affirmation we see in John chapter 1. He was waiting on affirmation for God to make, do a particular sign. But when he saw Jesus, he knew exactly who he was, and he knew that he was the sinless Son of God. And he said, I baptize to repentance. Chapter 3, verse 11, my baptism is in water for repentance. You have nothing to repent of. As a matter of fact, John says, Jesus, man, let's trade places. You're the sinless one. You come down here. I am the guilty one. I'm the sinner. I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you. I want you to understand, I don't know how long it's been since you actually thought about the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it presents a problem. It presents a problem because it's a baptism of repentance, and Jesus had no need to repent. It certainly created a problem for John. Now, I want us to look actually at the baptism of Jesus and see some things about it that I think we need to understand that apply to our life. The first thing is that there is no stronger verification of Jesus' sinlessness than this episode on the shores of the Jordan. The scriptures repeatedly affirm that Jesus was without sin, repeatedly. 2 Corinthians 5.1, God made him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Hebrews chapter 4 Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And this experience, this demonstrable experience, John remonstrating with Jesus, no, 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 I'm not worthy, you don't need this, is a demonstration of his sinlessness. Now, Jesus' baptism was unique in that it wasn't a baptism of repentance, but it's also unique in that it's not Christian baptism. It's not New Testament after Pentecost baptism. We're going to get to that at the end of this message, Lord willing. But I do want you to recognize that it's unique. There's really nothing in this experience that we can take home as personal application. It's something that we need to understand about our Savior. So why be baptized? Jesus answers the question in verse 15. Jesus answered him, let it be so now. By the way, I love the phrase. It's the idiom that was in common usage at a time. Basically, it's saying, just do it. Come on, John. And I don't know. Sometimes I have a sanctified imagination. Sometimes I have a fleshly imagination. But I can just see the line, what's stopping us? Why is John arguing with this guy? This argument goes on for a while. And Jesus, out of love for John and certainly without sin, but maybe just a little clarifying with a little bit of emphasis says John just do it for it is important for us to fulfill all righteousness and John relented when he understood John relented John was ready to baptism but what in the world does it mean 
to fulfill all righteousness. At the very least, it means to do the right thing. It means to do those things that were right. Jesus fulfilled every aspect of the law. Jesus fulfilled all things, even above and beyond what was expected or required. We have multiple examples of Jesus not being required to do this, the temple tax, and not being required to do that, but doing it just because it was right and would have been perceived as right to do. But that still leaves us with the problem of this sin thing, and that's why I have to say there's more here yet. And so this is really the sermon. So if you missed everything else, get this. All right. I believe that Jesus did this to identify with sinners. To identify with sinners. When Isaiah is prophesying, when God is telling Isaiah, some, some uh, what, 700 years before the time of Christ, or actually about 500 years before the time of Christ, when, when God is speaking to Isaiah, and he's preparing those people, and he talks about his, his anointed one that was go- is going to come, he says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. He's identified with the sinners. He's countered with those who broke the law. Yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for transgressors. I've struggled to communicate how th- this is such an extraordinary, extraordinary truth and what it tells us about him. You see, Jesus, God, condescended. There's a whole theological thing there. But he humbled himself, Philippians chapter 2. He took on the form of sinful flesh, yet without sin. He became a man, fully a man. That's the reason he came, in order for him to fulfill all of God's righteousness. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life. That's the reason why he didn't come down on Friday, get crucified, and resurrect on Sunday. He came and lived a righteous life. He came in order to fulfill all righteousness, to purchase righteousness for anyone. He has to identify with sinners. And in the incarnation, Jesus saw himself as one with, as identified with sinful men. He who had no sin took his place among those who have no righteousness of our own. He who was without sin went down into a baptism that was only for sinners. He was saying as loud and as clear as ever he could say, I identify here, I take my place with sinners, not as a sinner, but I identify with sinners. Let it be clear from the start that Jesus is a friend of sinners. And speaking as a sinner, I'm so glad. Aren't you? I want you to recognize this. Many sinners loved Jesus while the the religious and righteous people did not. As a matter of fact, one of the things they, they charged him with was he was a friend of sinners, right? Why are you hanging out with those people? Who's writing this account? Stay with me. Don't go to sleep yet. Who's writing this account? Who's writing this? No, who's writing this? This book. Matthew. Matthew. What do we know about Matthew? Matthew's name was Levi. Matthew was a Jew who had sold his character to the Romans to become a tax collector, viewed as a traitor to his people. They're always identified as tax collectors and sinners. You remember that? This was the outcast. You wouldn't wouldn't have had to look very hard to find someone more clearly identified as a sinner than Matthew. And yet Jesus one day saw him at his task and called him to follow him. Matthew knew that Jesus was a friend of sinners. You remember, when, uh, what did we read in Sunday school this morning? The passage in Matthew, uh, uh, um, well, actually, several passages. Again and again, Jesus identified with sinners. The, the prostitute who washes his feet and anoints his head with oil. Uh, the, the, even the religious people had trouble with, with Jesus and his identification with sinners. Imagine, Jesus, don't you know that guy's name? Zacchaeus. He's a bad guy. He's not only a traitor, he's a thief. 
Why are you going to his house? Jesus is not a religious leader who puts himself above his people and gives them instructions how to live. Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God who lived and walked with sinners, tempted in every manner, just as them, a friend of sinners, who ultimately is baptized into his death in the cross to pay the penalty for their sin. You've got to get the understanding here. You've got to be grateful that he is worthy. He's worthy of our blessing and honor and glory. And here he is, identifying with those who are in rebellion. Even in his death, Jesus identified with sinners. There were two on either side. And he bore the sins of every sinner that ever lived. Listen, in order to bring sinners to righteousness, he had to go to the depths of the waters of death. He had to bear sin, had to identify with sinners. There was no other way to fulfill all righteousness. J.R. Miller says it like this. He's an old, now dead Presbyterian pastor. He wrote many books, and in one of his books, he says, The shadow of the cross fell on the green banks and on the flowing Jordan, and it fell across the gentle and holy soul of Jesus as he stood there. He's looking to the cross. He knew what that baptism meant. He knew to what it had reduced him. He knew what its end would be. Yet knowing all, he voluntarily came to be baptized, thus accepting the message of redemption. Jesus joined himself to sinners from the very beginning. Isn't that great? That's why he came. I believe this baptism was identification with sinners, and it was to fulfill all righteousness, to do what was right, that it was part of his role. But it was also, as we see clearly, the inauguration of his earthly ministry. What's the last recorded words of Jesus we have up until now? Eighteen years have passed. What's the last recorded words we have of Jesus up until now? Mother, did you not know I needed to be about my father's business? Remember? He was 12. Now we have Jesus inaugurating his ministry at age 30, thereabouts. Jesus walked straightway up out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened to him. Now, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean that the heavens were opened? I've done a lot of study on this, and what I can tell you is that it means the heavens were opened. (laughs) If you look at Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel had a vision and the heavens were opened, and it's really kind of hard to describe what he saw. He did a good shot at it, but buddy, put pen to paper and see if you can draw it. It was an amazing, miraculous experience. We see in Revelation to John, the heavens are open, and he's revealed things about eternity that that were heretofore unrevealed. We have another place where at least someone saw the heavens being opened. You remember Stephen being stoned after he had preached to the Sanhedrin and to the Jews, and they picking up stones to stone him. And he looked up, and he said, Behold, I see heaven open, and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. I don't know exactly what it meant for the heavens to be open. There are some translations that say the heavens were rent. But it was a visible, tangible movement of God for a purpose. Not only were the heavens opened, the Holy Spirit descended. Now, He descended visibly. He descended in bodily form, in the form of a dove. Now, what, what's that all about? Well, I, I think it's important to note that Uh, The Spirit descending 
By the way, if you ever have questions about where the Trinity is shown in Scripture, it's clearly right here. You have the voice of the Father. You have the presence of the Spirit right there at the anointing of the Son. Clearly here. But I believe that the Spirit was descending one thing to simply anoint Him for service. Because of the prophecy in Psalm 45, God, thy God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows. And back to the Isaiah 61, listen. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek. And he sent me. This is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 4 when he begins his public inauguration there in Nazareth. And in Acts chapter 10 when Peter was preaching to Cornelius, he says, you know all these things that have happened. You know about this Jesus who was baptized and whom God anointed with the Holy Spirit. And so I believe it was an anointing. I believe it was an empowering for the work of the flesh. I believe it was affirmation, but I believe every king is anointed. He was being granted strength in his humanness. The Spirit came to anoint him for his kingly service. And that's not for us, guys. That was for him. We'll get to us in just a minute, Lord willing. But it's also divine confirmation. The Lord spoke. The Father spoke. This is my beloved son. My beloved. Speaking of deep, rich, profound relationship. The son of my love. I know him. He's been with me for all eternity, but I know him in the flesh, and I'm identifying him for you. Thirty years sinless. Out of Psalm 2, listen, my beloved son, this is the one in whom I am well pleased. And that just means delighted. (laughs) This is the one in whom I delight. I've examined the sacrificial dove. By the way, why did the Spirit come in the form of a dove? What would a Jew identify with a dove? The sacrifices in the temple. The sacrifices of the poor in the temple. Don't miss, don't miss the beautiful symbolism that's included in this. What's happening here? Jesus is being commissioned and affirmed. His earthly ministry is being inaugurated. He is chosen to be king. But his throne is going to be a cross. He's chosen to be king. But he's going to die as a sin offering. A sacrifice. He is commissioned. In his baptism, he identifies with sinners and he pictures his death. By being anointed with the Spirit, he is empowered to ministry. A ministry that ultimately will make him a sacrifice, the dove of sacrifice. And by his Father's word, he is said to be a worthy sacrifice. What an introduction. What a beginning. What an inauguration. What a ministry was his. John, in John chapter 1, <coughs> excuse me, John the Apostle wrote the Gospel of John. And in the first chapter, he's recording the words of John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus. And he says, John bore witness and said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. His baptism was public. It was the inauguration of his ministry. But it's also unique. You and I do not get baptized with the same baptism that the Lord Jesus Christ was baptized with. The New Testament is very clear. There are two Christian baptisms, and I want you to recognize this. It's very important that we understand this, and I do not have time to go 
deeply into this. We will spend more time on it later. But I want you to know that baptism means immersion, and it is frequently means identification. As Jesus was baptized to identify with sinners, the act of being immersed is an identification. And the Bible says that we are placed in Christ. We are placed in the Holy Spirit when we come to Him in repentance in faith. In, in, in Romans chapter 6, and again, we can look there really quick. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn there. I want to make this as clear as we can. In Romans chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul is writing this theological uh, treatise, this lesson, theology lesson to, to the church at Rome. He's just talked about grace and people. He says, what shall we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Because he's just said that there's no sin, that, that there's not enough grace to cover, that grace is sufficient and more than sufficient. And then he says, verse 2, no, we don't continue in sin by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? I want you to understand there is no water in John, I mean in Romans chapter 6. Do you get that? We have been placed into Christ spiritually. We have been immersed into the Holy Spirit. We have identified fully and completely with his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What is that baptism into his death? We have been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We have been placed completely in Christ. Let me tell you something. When you get saved, the Holy Spirit cleanses you, washes you, surrounds you, envelops you, comes to dwell inside of you. You are placed in the Spirit of God when He makes you new, when He saves you, when He washes you, and when He cleanses you. You don't need another Holy Spirit baptism. Holy Spirit baptism is at salvation. We are immersed in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit covers us and dwells us, fills us, and makes us part of the spiritual body of Christ. So what is water baptism about? We have a baptismal pool. Why do we, when we were walking, when we were first introducing people in the community to the church, we were walking down the street. I don't remember who all was with us. I think Jeannie was with us on that day and several of us. And we met a couple right down the way here. And we were talking about what a great community it is and, and, and how we're excited to be here. And he said, well, what kind of church are y'all? And we said, well, we're a Baptist church. He said, oh. He said, well, I'm a Methodist. We don't feel the need to get completely wet. <laughs> he said, so to be a member of your church, you you got you to put people all the way under, right? Well, we do. And why do we do that? Let me, let, me, let me make this abundantly clear. We believe in baptism by immersion after regeneration. We believe that the symbolism of baptism by immersion is what's clearly taught in Scripture. And matter of fact, we don't believe it. It is. You have, to, you have to work to make it not be. The very word baptism means to immerse or to submerge. And then we believe that Jesus commanded that we are to make disciples of all nations. What does that mean? Baptizing them. That's, that's identification. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe whatsoever things I've commanded you. And so we understand that there is a, an outward symbol 
of an inward reality. We practice baptism by immersion as an outward testimony of what's happened when we were immersed in the Holy Spirit at salvation. Okay? It's just a step of obedience in the life of a Christian. Now I want to ask you something. Jesus came and he identified with you. A man with no sin became as those with sin in the likeness of sinful flesh. In order to fulfill all righteousness, he went down into the waters of the Jordan. He allowed John to baptize him. And when he came up, the father affirmed him and said, this is my son. The Holy Spirit settled upon him in an anointing. The very heavens opened and he began his ministry, a ministry that would lead to the cross and a ministry that's still effective for you and for me. There's no other name under heaven whereby men and women and boys and girls can be saved. There's no other provision for salvation except the Lord Jesus Christ. And in today's text, we see this inauguration of his ministry, this divine affirmation that this is my son. And what I want to know is, do you know the fruit of that ministry? His death on the cross. His resurrection from the dead. His giving of life to those who receive Him, who believe upon His name by the will of the Father. I want you to be counted in that number. Isn't God good? He's good indeed. I tell you, uh, you need to come back next week. As a matter of fact, I, I, I've told you guys that there's no way we're going to get through the life of Christ just kind of skipping along the high points. And so next week we're going to talk about temptation. Because what happened? this is a heady day for the Lord Jesus Christ. He's alone walking from Nazareth. He, he's coming to be, inaugurate his public ministry. And when you think, buddy, this is great. We're ready to go. And all of a sudden, he's going to just kind of assume the crowds that John has collected for him. And things will move ahead. But no, the Holy Spirit leads him directly into the wilderness where he doesn't eat for 40 days. Does that sound like a fun retreat? Where he spends time in prayer. And which culminates with an interaction of three specific types of temptation. And here's what I want you to know. You and I have the same types of temptation. And so as we look at the temptation of Christ, we're going to take enough time to look at the temptation that we, as children of God, face. And learn how He responded and how we can not be overcome with temptation, but overcome temptation with the righteousness of Christ that lives within us. Good days. Make sure you come back. Father, I want to thank you for the baptism of Christ. I thank you that he did what was necessary only because it was necessary to fulfill all righteousness. I thank you that he is the sinless son of God. I thank you that he is the lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. I thank you for this inauguration of his ministry, for the, for the affirmation, for the uh, imprint of, uh, of your approval upon his life and work. I thank you for the uniqueness of his baptism. And I pray, Father, that we will publicly, when we come to Christ, make that known as well, that you have changed and transformed our lives. Father, we love you and we thank you. We trust you. It's in your name I pray these things. Amen.